again. <laughs> Wee! <laughs> All right, so here we are again, and today we're we're inviting back Ronnie again. Oh yeah. Oh no, Jeff, and you got to tell people who our other guest is today. Yes, so Nan Becker of Game Theory, so from the original lineup, and unfortunately, we lost a little bit of the early part of the discussion um, when when we were talking about Nan um, and Joseph moving from Wisconsin to Carmichael, a suburb of Sacramento, and meeting Scott and Joseph and and Scott being uh, classmates, right? Yes. Seven, eight-year-old kids. Yep. And mm -hmm. uh, Nan being annoyed by <laughs> her brother and this kid that he keeps bringing over. But but uh, we jump into the conversation um, when Ronnie starts asking about the alternate learning band. And um, that's where we jump into the conversation. So at the end, uh, she was gracious enough to uh, remind us of some a little bit of the conversation that we had at the beginning that we got cut off on but um, jumping in right now to Ronnie asking about alternate learning. Hi this is Soraya and this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agarubiar. Let's get groovy. Oh no, it didn't. Okay. It just started the recording now. Oh, cool. Oh. This was just a rehearsal. Uh. <laughs> Jeff's new at this, Nan. Okay. I'm just kidding. Well, that would explain why the little uh, okay. recording light is on now. So, Ronnie, your question again uh, 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 is referring to alternate learning starting up, right? And yeah, before, yeah. They're, yeah. They're the band that, yeah. Before that, it was the Lobster Quadrille. That was their name. Oh. Do you know that? <laughs> no, no. Uh, and I'm trying to think. I'm sure we have recording somewhere um, that's taken from Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland. Wow. Probably, um, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was the next one. So, yeah, they call themselves, you know, of course, Scott came up with it, but they call themselves the Lobster Quadrille. <laughs> and that was their, their first iteration that I can remember. Um, wow. So then they they would play with whichever bass player they could they could find and there was a kid you know he had um, weird he had a different I guess I'll put it this way he had a different taste in music than Scott and Joe did so that there was a lot of toleration you know well they they played the songs that this guy liked but um, right. every once in a while they come over to the house and you'd hear them and you think oh well they sound better they're sounding better that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then um, alternate learning happened. A very, very first version of it was Scott Galloway. And um, they had been practicing mainly at, at Scott Miller's house. And um, they set up in our family room. So it's like the couch and the band and then the other wall, you know, it was just like so crowded. And so you're kind of pinned on the couch watching them. And they played um, everything off of that EP, 
the alternate learning EP, and they got to green card. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is okay. You know, the, the um, they played some covers, but then, you know, the songs that they were playing to me sounded, you know, a little Beatleish and a lot Rolling Stones. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's okay. And then they started playing green card. <laughs> My jaw was like, I could not believe that song, you know, uh, that Scott had written it, that my drummer was doing the most amazing things on the drum that I'd ever heard him do. You know, the bass line was incredible. The synthesizer was fun and weird. And it was, I had goosebumps and when they finished with that song, I just kept saying, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I didn't say it out loud, but I thought I want to do music with Scott. How old are they at that, at this point, Nan? How old are Scott in the show? I was okay. starting, I think, yeah. I think about 17. Wow. Okay. 16, 17 around there. Nice. Now, now, were they playing, besides playing in, in your living room, were they playing live shows or like, were. did Scott yeah. get recording equipment? Like, it, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was one of the, the things that was really neat about Scott. He did a lot of work around the house. And so, you know, he, he did, he was, his parents were really great about setting up this system where he learned not only how to clean and how to do things around the house, but he also um, was basically just learning how to maintain stuff. Well, in exchange, he was given a very, very generous allowance. And he learned early on that if he wanted band equipment, he couldn't rely on his parents to buy it for him. So he would save up his money. And so he, you know, he bought his guitar, he bought recording equipment, you know, he bought the tape, he bought all the stuff. So he had a four track. And that's how that um, that alternate learning EP was recorded. Was on the four track, and then we used that same four track to do Blaze of Glory. Wow, wow! And then probably the uh, the album, the album here. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. Painted windows, yeah. yeah. So interesting. Okay, so it was more recording than playing live this very early. Well, every you once know. in a while, the high school would have some event. Um, or during noontime, um, we had a, a slightly raised stage in the middle of, of the high school. And uh, in, in the spring term, they would have different people come up and play. And so Joe and Scott and Scott Galloway played, I think it was more than, oh, and there was another guy too. Um, Jamie Stein was uh, would play bass, and then Scott Galloway and Scott Miller was were guitar, and um, they would play during lunch. And then there was a senior show <laughs> where they did, I think, I'm trying to think if they did one original song. I kind of shoot, I don't remember, but they played a Roxy Music song. Oh, and they changed their name. They were the Dress Shields. 
and um, they dressed up um, punk. It was <laughs> leather and safety pins, you know, and this is the senior talent show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they got up and they played three songs, one on top of the other, you know, it was just an amazing performance. And then my job along with two other friends at the end of their performance to, was to run screaming up to the front of the stage and throw flowers at them. Oh. <laughs> it was all met by the audience with waves of silence, stunned. Oh. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, they were, they were putting on, you know, interesting theater even then. Um, I, I, you know, obviously the rest of the stuff that was going on wasn't very, I think they, they did a, um, oh, somebody did a, um, a cover of short people and um, called themselves something like Casey and the Hits and they dressed themselves up and had the word Hits spelled across their stomachs, H-A-I-T-S. And then of course, oops, rearranged the spelling so it spelled shit, you know, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> This is what we had, and then we had Scott and Joe. <laughs> That's good shtick. That's yeah. good shtick. Yeah, yeah. I got to so, admire, yeah, Scott. For like, I mean, this record doesn't say alternative learn, alternate learning. Like it's A L R N. Like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you would never look at this and think, oh, that means alternate learning. Right. You know. Yeah. Like. Yeah, that was one of her. Got to admire that. Yeah, yeah. That was Scott. All Scott. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So everybody starts going to college at this point, right? Um, including you. Did you all go to University of Davis? Um, I started out at uh, the local junior college. Then I moved to Davis. Um, and then Scott went there after a couple years. And then I left. I dropped out. Um, mm. And it was around about that time that... Um, that alternate learning lineup was changing a lot. And um, so at one point I was asked to be in it. And um, my brother didn't like, I, I loved being the band. I mean, I got to play green card, you know, so that was really important. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but there was uh, another member of the band that was very unpleasant. And then my brother was not comfortable about being in a band with a family member. You know, he's, you know, he's starting to break free and, and stand on his own as a, as, as an adult. And the last thing he wanted was, you know, his sibling in the band there. Um, so between the, those two, they convinced Scott to kick me out and I was absolutely devastated. Um, a funny thing is that Joe mentioned it a couple of years ago and he he made some comment about it. I burst into tears. <laughs> he was, Nan, Nan, oh, Nan, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I had no idea that it hurt this much. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> you were kids. Yeah. So yeah. And I and I wanted to play green card. You know, I had I had wanted yeah, yeah. songs since the first time I heard it. So yeah, that was really tough. I really, really wanted to play Scott songs. And um, yeah. so later on, um, Joe had left the band, probably had gone into 
um, thin white rope, um, which is still one of the most amazing bands that come out of Davis. It's just, I, I love that band. Oh, yeah. I was so proud of what he did with that band. It's an incredible, incredible band. And um, so Joe had left. Uh, we were looking for a drummer. Uh, they were looking for keyboards because Lynn Ross had left. And uh, so Scott asked me again if I would be in the band now that Joe was out. Well, the person that mm -hmm. didn't like me was still in the band. And for the moment, still wanted me in the, you know, had said, yeah, yeah, she should be in the band. And so I said to Scott, I will join the band on one condition. And that is if when this person pressures you to kick me out of the band again, you have to promise me that I will not get kicked out. And he promised. Wow. Now, nice. And, and, and the name change happens around then. Is that just because like it was so many well, I yeah. guess there was one guy left over, but uh, yeah, that was it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So when push came to fudge, shove, fudge, interesting. No, I, I love fudge. Yeah, I love yeah. that fudge. fudge. That's, a, that's a better variation. No, maybe I'm trying not to not to uh, use profanity or something. Um, anyway, when, <laughs> when it got down to it, um, and things got as ugly as they did. Um, Scott stuck with me, you know, which was also pretty darn awesome. Wow. I was kind of surprised, honestly, and he stuck with me. And uh, so uh, he and I had, you know, had to find new people for bass and drum. And so that was when, uh, when those guys joined, when Mike Irwin and uh, Fred Yuhosh joined, that was when we decided uh, a new name was in order. Gotcha. And, I remember, and then so oh, no we were just we were, i just remember sitting in his room at his parents house tossing names around and he came up with that and it was like okay sure game theory okay wow and, and at this point do you just you decide you want to just do a full-length record like no yeah. no seven inch or no ep like no. uh yeah. yeah well i suppose you know he <laughs> wanted you know he we have been rehearsing a lot of material. The thing that amazes me about that, I found a recording. Oh, I want to say it was Chico. I found a recording and I know that we were, we got together over the summer, like July or August. Um, I want to say 83, maybe, no, no, 82, I bet, or earlier, maybe 81. I can't remember anymore. You'll have to help me with that. Um, we were learning that music, you know, probably mid to late summer, and we did a performance right when school started um, up in Chico, and we did a live performance, and I heard a recording of it recently. I was amazed at how great we sounded, you know, for a band that didn't know each other very well had been rehearsing for a matter of weeks. We sounded terrific. We sounded really Wow. Good. Scott was great at finding new talent.
That is amazing because it's complex music, even yeah. even the early game theory, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, it's not yeah. Chuck Berry. No, yeah. and I, you know, and <laughs> yesterday I was listening to, um, um, what is it? It's not Blaze of Glory. It was like the compilation of all those early um, games. Oh, Dead Center. Dead Center. Yeah. Dead After Center. that, yeah. where is it? Oh, here it is. Um, Distortions of Glory. I got it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, oh, the CD. Yep. Yeah, I was thinking of the, uh, yeah. the album. Yeah. Distortions of Glory. There we go. Yes. And, uh, yes. I was listening to that and anticipating that I wouldn't like, I mean, I liked a couple things on Blaze of Glory, but I was thinking, eh, you know, this probably won't sound that good to me after Real Nighttime, which is probably my favorite. And mm -hmm. I listened to it yesterday. I was like, damn. <laughs> that was, yeah you know why did more people know about this that was an amazing amazing record that was yeah you know. no no the songwriting is amazing yeah. i mean uh i think i think scott was still learning how to maybe produce you know it's very it's very lo-fi yeah. plays a glory but it's very underrated it's you know in his body of work well you know you mentioned jefferson airplane and that's that very first serial surrealistic pillow is one of my favorite albums bar none and mm -hmm. um we recorded our album blaze of glory in the exact same way that they did they had a four track tape they would mix they would record four tracks they would mix it down to one track and then they would record three tracks and then mix it down so there were now two tracks and they kept you know recording you know and then shrinking it down and shrinking it down and that's exactly what we did and when wow. you think about what both of those albums yeah we're you know certainly not as good as surrealistic pillow but when you think about what we were able to accomplish with that technique it, it's mind-boggling it's my no, it really is, especially at that point, that day in 1982. Right. I mean, people weren't yeah. Yeah, yeah. recording in their in their rooms like this. Right, I mean, right. Um, I wanted to yeah. mention, uh, it gives me chills, that song. Um, yes. I've heard a few recordings of that now. It's, um, I the version I listened to yesterday had uh, Shalini Chatterjee doing backing vocals on it. The first one was, um, with Donette doing backing vocals. And I was really mad at Scott. It's like, I'm in the band guy, you know? It's like, <laughs> those were really fun. Why don't I get to do those? I, you know, I did them live, but I never got to record them. But the thing you should know about the percussion, which is that, you know, that thumping kind of bass that was actually mm -hmm. my fist 
hitting my Korg synthesizer um, case. Oh, wow. That's wow. that sound. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not some muffled bass drum. It's me hitting a, basically a, a, a box that I put my synthesizer into, the, the, oh, the big wow. blue case. Wow. Yeah. How, how did you uh, come about getting that Korg or choosing that as your keyboard? Was that a, did Scott have input oh, or, or did you already have it? No, or? no. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> we, we drove to the Bay Area. Uh, couldn't tell you the store anymore where we went to. We went to a store in the Bay Area that yeah. carried synthesizers. And uh, he and I played different synthesizers till we found the Korg. I think he had pretty much thought it had to be a Korg based on what he was listening to other people's recordings. And so he, mm -hmm. and it had, um, he had had another synthesizer before that. Um, but there was a lot of twiddling and twaddling you had to do to get any sound of, uh, out of it. And with that Korg, it had presets that you could then adjust to make them your own as well as make your own. And he thought that that would be the perfect thing for us. So um, we went in thinking that probably it would be a Korg. Uh, the one thing I will tell you, um, the story that I will tell you along with that, the most terrifying drive of my life was probably that drive to and from San Francisco. Um, Scott was the most reckless driver of anyone I've ever met. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, you look at any driving going on during Formula One or Indy 500, that ability <laughs> for a car to slip in between two cars, you know, to change lanes. Scott um, could do this with this enormous, enormous white station wagon. It was like the biggest car in the and it kind of swayed, you know, whenever it, it moved. And he could, he was incredible. He could gauge how much space there was between a car and just slip in without making anybody break around him. And, and the, the only thing that was good about it was that he used his turn signals. So you knew what he was gonna do before he did it. But I will tell you that that entire drive was punctuated by the sound of the turn signal. It was constant. It wasn't like turn signal <laughs> and then stop and drive for a little while and then turn signal, we're gonna change lanes. It was constant. So it was tickety, 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 tickety <laughs> for 90 miles to, to San Francisco and back. And I, I was laughing hysterically because I was so terrified. And um, I got out of the car and I said, my God, <laughs> Scott, that was awful. And he said, you were laughing. I thought you enjoyed it. <laughs> Nervous laughing. Nervous laughing. Nervous, terrifying laughing. Wow. So that was. These are the people I yell at on the freeway. Yeah. Now. Like, I can't believe Scott's smart. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't use turn signals, though, normally. I got to say, people that do that. That, was, that so. was the one thing. He did wind up getting a ticket for reckless driving, and that, you know, improved things. I'm sure once he had children, that improved things too. <laughs> <laughs> so when nice. you, when you guys made the record blaze of glory mm -hmm. i can't wait to see ronnie's i hope you got it available because mine oh. is the repress yeah. i do and what we'll get to my particular copy at the end okay. but uh oh okay yeah, yeah. I, I have a couple <laughs> copies of it myself yeah 
So mine I yeah. actually bought when I was on I'll give you a brief. at Criminal Records. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yep, yep. Again, we'll talk about my particular copy at the end. Yeah, there's, there's a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I, I, I am curious about like the packaging. How, what? And I'm sure that was both like, idea. Why would you wonder about that, Jeff? Because it's, it's in a, a plastic bag. It's in a plastic bag. <laughs> then as you said that, I thought, here comes the packaging questions. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right. So um, I'm guessing that was Scott's idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So did the band or, package it together? Did you run out of money, Nan? Did you run out of money? Was that it? Well, it wasn't running out of money. Sorry. It was, but, you know, Scott knew how to budget. And, you know, he had... You know, we had paid full price for, you know, the, the mixing, you know, the, the production, all of that stuff. You know, we had to, you know, you had to go someplace professional where they would take all your tracks and, and you know, put it onto vinyl. And so he was trying to figure out ways that we could save money in whatever way that we could. And so, and we also wanted to stand out from everybody else. So what better way than to make your packaging look really different, strange, unique. So, you know, it was buying white garbage bags, probably it must have been the four <laughs> gallon size, I would say, you know, whatever that smaller size is. And then um, spray adhesive. And uh, we printed up the front and the back and which is, you know, regular paper, we, we did pay for printing. And I just remember um, it would be spray the paper and then slap it on the bag with the record in it because you had to do it just right. Um, in fact, I almost think that I kind of recall that it was a two-person job because the record was in the bag, but then you had to spread the plastic just right so that the, the paper wouldn't get stuck onto a fold and fall off. So, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of experimentation with that. So it was, it was sort of a, you know, me spreading the, the, the plastic enough so that he could go slap <laughs> and put the, so, the picture on the pictures. How many of them, Nan? How, how many do you know about? How many of them you made? Couldn't tell you. I don't know. Okay. Might have and obviously you, obviously you must have just distributed them yourselves like you didn't send these plastic bags off to a <laughs> a distributor to no, you know probably not or did you yeah and I think yeah no I don't think we had a distributor at that time so it was taking it to record stores wherever we could you know be like and I want to say I want to say 500 but it might have been more I can't remember anymore if it um but, you know, yeah. so there was always a box of records in the car and you go and you drop off a few and and the record stores all hated it because it wasn't easy to, to <laughs> display. So a lot of times they were just shoved to the back. You know, it was like, you know, Scott would have something witty to say about the, the wisdom of, you know, packaging something that no one would want to display because it didn't get <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> And who knew that it would end up being a collector's edition? I'm sure at the time you guys did not think someday people are going to be in Temecula, California, looking for this at less than two hundred dollars right. for this. Yeah. Oh, it's oh, it's up to that now. It's one something if you can if you can find it. Right. Yeah. Well, I believe it. I uh, when I was teaching library in school, there was a a, a teacher in the third grade. 
that my son eventually had great great guy and he had been one of the um show promoters in his college in texas i want to say am but i'm not i'm not positive no 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 it wasn't it was austin he was uh one of the guys in austin that would hire bands and promote them and do all that stuff you know the guy that's you know running stuff behind the scenes and i didn't know any of this stuff um he we were talking about music and i said you know i was in a band and um oh really you know we were just you know chatting and uh, he was dropping his kids, his class off in the library. So my, uh, my teacher was, you know, teaching the kids and he and I were chatting. And um, it was a huge library. This, this room was enormous. And so I said, yeah, yeah. And I, and I mentioned a few things. So he's coming back to pick his kids up, you know, 20 minutes later. And he is <laughs> yelling from the far side of the room, your brother was in thin white rope. Your brother was in thin white rope. <laughs> And he just went on and on and on about them. But then he said, did you know that the white, your, your plastic bag album was worth $75? It's like, huh, I didn't know that. So no, I, I wasn't aware of that until he told me. Yeah, no, it's triple digits nice. easily now. Wow. Yeah, if, uh, if you can find it. Uh, how, how was the, uh, was, did it get reviewed now? time like any in any publications like any did it gather any attention you know at the time? i feel like it did i feel like it did and yet you know that's just something that i haven't thought about in a long time i think if i were to hunt around i might find a review somewhere um yeah you know it's it's interesting i show up in books every once in a while there'll be some like rolling stone compilation of something and there'll be a mention of that album and and keyboards and stuff um i got there was a guy in Sacramento who regularly panned the local talent. And it was a really big deal the day I got a compliment from him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Yeah, it was like we all laughed about that because he, he regularly panned everybody. Nice. We lost, we lost Soraya, it looks like. Yeah. Good. We'll get her back. She'll be back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we should also mention before we leave Blaze of Glory that, like, the keyboard sounds. I know. I know. We talked about the Korg, but I mean, yeah. That that and I, I and we learned from Shelly that you did pass on the keyboard to her, correct? I did uh, I did because that that keyboard sound, that game theory keyboard sound, is established on Blaze of Glory, and they they kept it throughout their yeah. career. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think my brother observed that a lot of the stuff that we did in game theory then pretty much stayed the same the way that the women's backing vocals were yes um the way that um the keyboards were um i made a point you know scott could write very sweet songs but one of the things that he and i consciously decided very early on was to have as few um triad type chords as possible don't do a you know a one three five don't do a one three it was always one fours and one fives uh i you know, like cg for example da because even though they're part of the chord um they sounded just dissonant enough to prevent the songs from getting too cute or too twee too sweet um, so, and that was established very early on. I think wow. one of my favorite things that I loved to do 
um, Scott would call me up and say, okay, I got a new song. And I'd say, come on over. And we'd um, pull out the synthesizer and hook a speaker up to it. And then he'd have his guitar and we would work through everything that he had done. We would talk about lyrics, we'd talk about sounds, we'd talk about arrangements. Um, so he and I would work out keyboard parts beforehand, or he'd say, this is what I want. And I'd say, okay, how about this? How about this? How about this? Until we'd figure it out. By the time we got to real nighttime, um, it wasn't Scott telling me what to do anymore. And I think that was true for all of us. Uh, I think that was with, with each album, we became more and more independent and better and better at interpreting what Scott wanted. And, you know, so the, the blaze of glory, you know, he had ideas of how things should be like, um, what was it? Oh, white blues, that, mm -hmm. that keyboard part. I, I was so happy when that yes. went off the playlist, you know, yes, yes. Very fast. Yeah. Your arms were so, so yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like this, you know, okay, let's, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know Scott Scott loved music that did that he loved songs you know Roxy Music does stuff like that uh, he yeah. loved it and I hated performing it because <laughs> you have to go really fast but you also have to be in time with everybody else so it's you know I'm watching and and I'm it was really hard it was really hard yeah. and it made me feel really self-conscious and inept and uh, so, yeah, as soon as that went out, went off the playlist, I was real happy. But so that was one of the ones that he um, he did. I would, yeah, white blues, um, young drug. Those were all things that we were working on before we became game theory. And then we gradually got more and more comfortable. It's like, oh, say, okay, so you know, how about Mary Magdalene? Now, if I was going to play Mary Magdalene. Uh, I would still do a bell on the synthesizer because that was a thing. It needed to sound like church bells. Um, but I would definitely change how that played because um, I listen to it now and I just, I think, Ugh. at that one um, I, I didn't care for that at all um, but with each recording that we did we you know kind of branched out and so we were expressing each of us was expressing ourselves and yet figuring out a way to to interpret what Scott was doing and telling us what he wanted it was yeah. it was pretty great that's my favorite song on the record by the way man Mary yeah. Mary Magdalene Thank you. Thank you. But I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it's one of my favorites. I, it's 
you know, it's really hard. I listened to it. I listened to this the other day. And like I said, it just, it just blew me away. I mean, I love Stupid Heart. Um, yeah. It's so raucous. Uh, Bad Year at UCLA. Yes. Uh, I loved that. With um, your backing vocals, that that's, like you said, uh, established that female backing right, vocal. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. And um, that was, you, were, you remember with Bad Year, it, uh, it opens with this very haunting synthesizer part, the keyboards. And, you know, basically he said, um, start out with just noodle around, you know, just play around. It, we just want kind of this wall of sound and then pick, you know, and, and we do this every time, pick, pick this theme that's going to cue us. Okay, you're done. And here we get, uh, here we're going. So it was always, um, and when they heard that passage, that was time to kick it in. So I was doing exactly what Scott had told me to do during our memorial concert in 2013 in July at Shine in Sacramento. And so, you know, everybody's very polite. They're sitting there. And then that part came in. And I heard the whole audience go, oh, and I lost it. Wow. And I was supposed to start singing right away. I opened my mouth and no sound would come out because I knew it would just be sobs. So it's like... Okay, first verse. Let's see if we can do it with the second verse. So that, <laughs> and I was able to sing for the second verse, but the first verse, you know, I couldn't sing like we used to because I was going to fall apart. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. Bad, bad year. You, Scott chose to re-record that for the CD reissue in the early '90s. Right. As on the Blaze of Glory. Uh, I mean, yeah. I know you're not in Scott's head at that point, but but but. He just wanted to improve it or something bothered him about the original, you know? Yeah, there were, um, I was trying to think which one that was, but yeah, I know what you're saying. And yeah, uh, was it Tinkers to Evers a Chance? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the re-recording. Yeah, that's it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we recorded, we re-recorded a lot of things. Um, I drove into uh, the Bay Area and we recorded a lot of things. And um I think he just wanted it to sound better to him. He could hear the um, the sloppiness to things, uh, to the song. He just wanted it to sound more polished. I think he didn't want that to be the only thing that, you know, of that album, he had good material, but he didn't want the recording to define that album. So I think that right. that was why he did it. Um, he also said that Bad Year at UCLA's um, had a better sound to it than bad year at ucd <laughs> UC true, <Davis>. true. So, <laughs> yeah i i'll you know i'll, I'll take a, a leap out there i think that was one of those songs about me 
because um, I went to Davis about two years before he did. So I think that that was, um, that was being written during that period of time. Um, just watching somebody you care about go off to school and you know whether they'll even remember you. Um, it's, um, so I, I always felt that was, was a little bit biographical. Wow. Nice. Um, so, so next we have the, uh, a follow-up EP, Nan. Yes, yes. One of the accounts of people you know. And, um, yes. Uh, uh, how'd you decide to make it an EP? And we also, it introduces a, a, new, a new songwriter uh, in the band, as well as a lead vocal by you, Nan. I know that's a lot to, this is oh, a lot yeah. to. <laughs> oh yeah, Life in July. And uh, yeah, I want to get hit by a car, I believe is what you're referring to. Fred has two songs on here and then uh oh, yeah like the side one is the Scott songs and then side two is the, right. the other stuff yeah the other stuff um well, yeah <laughs> that was that I didn't mean was, that bad Fred if you're watching no, yeah. but yeah that, that was one of those that kind of I felt could split the band right down the middle it was I think musically yeah. it was a fun song to play but it had kind of a um uh novelty song quality to it that mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, S Scott really wanted other people to contribute. And he, yeah. and, you know, he trusted Fred. Fred was a great musician, um, but yeah. he did not care for the, uh, the um, lyrics particularly. Um, but, you know, he, right. his game and he sang backing vocals with the rest of us, you know, while, while Fred sang. So, you know, it was, and I think he would just wanted people to be more equally represented. Um, as far as my contribution, I, I just found, um, I found a piece of paper today that had, you know, my scribbling of the lyrics down and Scott and I sat down and just wrote them together. Um, that one was um, basically a song about getting older and feeling pressured to settle down and get married and all of that other stuff. So that was, that was the gist of that song. Um, and I remember writing it with Scott and having a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know Fred had a one song on the next EP, but I'd never, he never really let, never really had people write songs again. You know what, you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. this is the most collaborative i think uh yeah you know, game theory ever got yeah so. i think donette wrote some songs or they covered some songs that she had done with other bands but yeah that's pretty much it yeah that's it. so nan earlier you were talking about the process for recording blaze of glory where you had the 
the tracking where you would do four tracks or three tracks and then um yeah and put them down to one track and that would open up three tracks so right. these two eps uh, for pointing accounts of people you know in distortion you were um in dave gill's garage right samurai sound lab so did right. that, how how did that change um with have being in kind of a studio now versus um <laughs> Well, the biggest thing was not hearing. <laughs> Your peanut butter sandwich is ready. Okay, mom. <laughs> mom. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a big change. Um, I was trying to think. I I don't know. I I think part of it was just feeling like grownups, you know, and feeling a little more real. That was one of the big things uh, that I remember. Um, having our own space, having our own rehearsal space, and then having our own space to record was uh, very liberating. Oh. We had practiced in, in uh, garages. There was a place that Scott was renting uh, in Davis, and we played in there when I was in alternate learning. Um, but that band, uh, having the studio, and because uh, Dave Gill was such a perfectionist when it came to that. Uh, he's, he's also just an amazing person. Um, so, so, so particular about how things had to be. And keep in mind, this guy is, you know, 17 years old. So he's got a lot of brashness to him too. He knew how to do everything. <laughs> so he had yeah. the, like the, 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 the sound muffling stuff that was glued to every surface you know, so that, you know, you were controlling, you know, how the sound was being distributed throughout the room. It was, it was really amazing. And, you know, you, you felt validated. It was, it was pretty great. Wow. By the way, Soraya, I, I'm confused by all this technical uh, jargon these two are using too. I, uh, tracks and yeah, baffling. So I just take notes. Right there and with you. I, and then I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I <take notes. laughs> Although I heard you use the word baffling. I did not use the word baffling. That's very good. Okay. Okay. Well, you, okay. Well, yeah. I'm just baffled in general. Yeah. By, <laughs> <laughs> I might've ended up in a band, but I'm totally confused by technical <laughs> stuff. So, yeah. All right, Ronnie, are we ready so, to talk about distortion yet? Yeah, let's do it. I, I'm just curious how the, uh, the idea of a another EP after an EP, like two EPs in a row, like uh, uh, and not, you know, a full length or right. I, I wonder if it had more to do with we were doing a lot of touring at the time. The other thing, keep in mind, um, Scott was in a computer engineering course at Davis too, so and and Fred was. I want to say business, business and music majors. Um, I was studying English at uh, CSUS in Sacramento. Um, we were all, when we weren't playing music, almost all of us were getting ready for finals and writing papers. And so mm -hmm. I think a lot of it had to do with product as much as anything. There just wasn't a lot of time to be writing new things and going to school and touring, which was a big thing. We were we were out playing somewhere just about every weekend. 
Mm-hmm. And um, if we weren't doing something locally where we were climbing in the car and driving someplace on Friday or Saturday and then staying overnight on Sunday and then trying to get our homework done in time, you know, for Monday morning. So I think that would be my guess. I couldn't, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was more the idea is like, okay, we've got these songs, let's get them recorded. Let's get them out there so we can be promoting something new. Right. So, and I, I know these guys want to bring it up. Uh, you, you bring in a producer for Distortion. Yeah. An outside producer for the first time. Michael Coercio from Three O'Clock. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. How was that experience having Michael there? Did he have much input or was he more fly on the wall or more active? No. Uh, he was uh, he was very collaborative with Scott. And, and I think that he he brought an objective uh, perspective that was great and that Scott respected, hmm. uh, you know, because Michael had lots and lots of experience with, with recording with uh, Salvation Army and with Three O'Clock. And so he was right in there listening to stuff and, and saying, no, I don't like this. This sounds, you know, this doesn't sound good. Or why don't you try this? Or yeah, that's perfect. Let's keep that. Um, Michael was just that extra ear that we needed um, with input um, for Scott and Scott respected him. And we all respected him too. He was very good. He was very good. And then he got to do a few backing vocals with us too to round things out, which was also nice. Yeah, their voices complement each other well, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so with these records, the graphics, you're already starting to see the growth in the G, right? (laughs) Was there any any talk about that? I've never thought about the G. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I I can see your point. Um, <laughs> your point that's too funny uh, yeah. it was just Scott's thing you know Scott was an artist Scott was a graphic artist Scott was a computer engineer and knew all kinds of language you know the, the cobalt all of those things uh, he was a musician uh, he was an incredible talent and so he was the one that would design all the albums. And so he was the one that I wanted that theme uh, lettering for game theory. So it was recognizable. That was, he was very, very sensitive to um, advertising and product. So we had our, our special G, um, though you're right, it was, it was cut off. Was which, cut off. which lasted the rest of the career of the band, really. Right, yeah. We also learned when uh, Distortion got reissued that that um, Earl Slick played the guitar solo. Never knew That's that right. for 30 That's years. Right. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, Dave Millington was the co-owner of Samurai Studios and his sister was married to Earl. And so okay. they got the idea. Let's ask Earl to do, you know, something in Shark Pretty. This is, this is something I, I'm going to do a caveat here. Seize the day. 
if Earl Smith is going to be in the studio recording something, don't stay at home and do your homework. Do I remember what assignment I was working on the day that Earl was recording for Shark Pretty? No, I have no idea. Do I wish that I was there and listened to that guitar? <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. I never met him because I had homework. So, you know, seize the day. Forget the homework. You know, if it's late, if you, you know, I wasn't real good at that. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if Soraya likes hearing that as a I professor. agree. I agree. I, thank, you. thank you. Yeah, it's just like, yes, it's important, but sometimes you have to keep it in perspective. And it's been something that has carried me through my entire life. You know, do I want to be a band and stand in front of people and have them look at me, maybe have them boo me, maybe not, you know, you know, make yourself vulnerable? Yeah. Make yourself vulnerable. It's how you get experiences. I love it's that. what makes Wonderful. life work. Yeah. Did um did Earl not want to be credited by his real name, or did you? No. Okay. Okay. No. Oh, he um I I think part of it had to do with recording, you know, uh, competing recording contracts and things like that. Some of it was maybe not really wanting his name on some little nobody band in the middle of nowhere, California, mm. you know, you know, yeah. the guy that records with David Bowie, do you really want to say, you know, David Bowie and game theory? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this is right off the let's dance to big tour where he was right. You know, yeah, exactly. arguably the peak of his. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was, there was a little something going on with that, you know, and it's like, well, that's your condition. Yeah, we'll take it. You know, we'll take this absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous guitar solo. And you, the other thing that you might notice is that Scott very graciously listened to me and allowed my dad to get credited for a little bit of Shark Pretty. Uh, the phrase crows are on the moon tonight was something my dad said. walking to a movie theater to see a Buster Keaton film festival. And uh, the sun was going down. And I'm sure you know, Ronnie, about the large population of crows in downtown Sacramento. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Flying across the sky, you know, the 
the it's that beautiful dusky blue and there was a full moon and you could see the the crows flying in front of it and my dad said look crows are on the moon tonight and that was it i, I told scott that and and it became part of uh, shark pretty beautiful that's one of my yeah. my most favorite game theory songs yeah 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 well and that's really tricky because i i love that one um but as far as life's philosophies sleeping through heaven is one of my absolute favorites too ah. Heaven. No, that's beautiful. And the Red Baron, I mean, oh, gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah gorgeous, gorgeous. You know, your keyboards, I, Nan. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel, I, I feel so privileged to be on those amazing songs. They're just yeah. like some of my favorite pieces of music. Very, very lucky. So, so around this time, that that you get you get uh, some other labels sniffing around, right? So you have the European label that wants to compile the EPs onto sure. this. Yes. And yeah. uh, and you eventually yeah, signed with Enigma. Like, um, uh, were there a lot of labels vying for <laughs> for Game Theory at this point? Or was uh, Enigma uh, the, yeah. Not that I recall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Nan, I had a question. Yeah. Um, do you have a, pre um, a preference uh, playing, performing live versus being in the studio? Did you like the interaction with the crowd? Um, it sounds like you you really enjoyed putting yourself out there, um, or at least wanted to do that for personal growth, right? Is right. That's a lovely way of putting it. And it was terribly painful at first, and then um, it still made me feel really nervous. But I loved it. I loved getting that energy from people. Uh, 
that was, you know, when you first learn about the, the audience energy coming back at you on a, on a good day, it's so fabulous. But I will tell you that one of the most important things that I learned in the band is if there's nobody in the venue and you were kind of hoping for that audience energy, it's really important to just enjoy it just for the sake of playing. You know, it got to this great point where you play music just because you love to play music with your friends. And so it didn't matter where we were. Um, we were in the Dakotas somewhere playing this bar and there were three people there and they were all drunk. And um, the place was, it was a vast place with nobody in it except these three drunk guys. Um, and it was kind of early in the evening too. There was nobody else. There wasn't even another band playing. It was um, pretty awful. And if you go in and just think, this is just another rehearsal and we're gonna have fun. Uh, I was concerned because the guys were drunk and I figured that they would be belligerent and they started to be. Scott said the most amazing things to them, just kept chatting to them over the microphone and they wound up being our buds. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like, and that was one of the best things about Scott. Oh, there were lots of best things about Scott. But one of the coolest things about him was his ability to say something incredibly witty and totally disarm anybody. And, and that's what he did with these three guys. I mean, they could barely stand, but they were hollering and yelling and, you know, and making fun of us. And Scott just talked to them and calmed them right down. And so they had a great time. We had a great time. Wow. That's a yeah, lot about wonderful. who he was, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of your quotes in this book that I really liked that I wanted to ask you about is um, you're quoted as saying that Scott could talk pretzels around you, not circles pretzels and I thought that was really interesting wording and it, yeah it probably says a lot about what, what was going on in his head and the way mm -hmm. to communicate but uh, yeah what what made you come up with that pretzels versus circles <laughs> um if you've never had an argument with Scott <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was it was you'd think that you had him and then there'd be something that would come around from behind that he would say and he's just like God damn it. <laughs> and then like, you know, months later, you'd think of the answer to that. It's like, well, you know, but by that time, you know, it was all over with. So he just, he was uh, very, very good at out talking anybody. And, and it wasn't, you know, part of it was his being funny. Um, a lot of it was his ability to string words together in a way that no one had ever done. Um, I remember saying something to him that yes, was obvious. I can't remember what, I wouldn't be able to tell you what I said, but his response was, ah, Nan, you have a flair for the obvious. And, you know, and you're laughing and kind of wincing at the same time. And that was, you know, what Scott did, you know, he was just uh, so, so able to string words together and say something that was either profound or witty, uh, cutting. Um, you know, it, he was he was a difficult person to disagree with um, when he didn't want to try and figure out what was going on. When he did want to figure out what was going on, he was fabulous at saying, so you're saying whatever. 
and it would completely turn around what you said and yet define what you said. Um, he, he was one of the most articulate people I've ever met. You know, it's like, I can aspire to that. I will never have his gift. Nice. Of that. I love nice. That. I love that. Well, Nan, you, you, you signed to Enigma. You make this incredible record, Real Night Time, which we'll cover on another episode. But um, then the original band breaks up. Like, everyone leaves. Like, how, how what happened with the end of the band, original lineup there? Well, um, just trying to think. Um, Dave had a girlfriend that got pregnant and he married her. So he was becoming the family man and couldn't be on the road all the time. Fred's parents really felt strongly that he needed to put his concentration in school. And uh, I uh, had gotten pregnant. My husband and I had gotten pregnant and Scott said, you're pregnant, you can't be in the band. And at the time, I thought it was some form of male chauvinism. But years and years later, I was talking to him, and he wasn't recording, he wasn't doing anything, he wasn't performing. And I said, Scott, you know, what's up? Why aren't you doing any of that? And he said, well, Nan, I have kids. So I realized, you know, for the first time in decades, the guy was walking his talk. You know, if you've got little kids, you need to be concentrating on making sure that you're there for them because we certainly didn't have the money to pile the whole family up into a tour bus and tour across the country with nannies. You know, that's not where we were at. So you had to take care of what was the most important thing. And, and he felt that my family was the most important thing. And, you know, he was right. Wow. Was hard, hard truth, but he was right. And I say that he's right because he did it himself. Wow. That must have been eye-opening to have that revelation after decades, right? Yeah. yeah, that had been, uh, I mean, he was one of my dearest friends, but that had really, really hurt. You know, because my husband and I had been talking about what we could do to make this possible. You know, well, you know, I'll, I'll go on tour with the band, but, you know, he'll be, you know, taking care of the kid or we'll find, you know, we'll get daycare, whatever we need to do, you know, it'll be possible. And that was it for Scott. It's nope you know, you need to be done. And um, so I left and then everybody else kind of left. And, you know, that was horrible for Scott. That was terrible, terrible, terrible for Scott. To my way of thinking, the song Erica's Word is basically about that. As we go back to what I said in the beginning, and I don't know if we were recording then or we may not have been, when Scott asked me to be in alternate learning for the second time, and I said, I will be in the band on the condition that when you get pressure to kick me out, I stay and you fight for me. And then I turn around and get pregnant. So I, I've always felt that Erica's word was about broken promises, that he had taken a lot of risks and um, had stuck by me through thick and thin, even when I struggled, you know, the other guys were really fabulous musicians. And this was my first time out playing publicly in, in a band. Um, and he stuck by me and he supported me and he was great. And I let him down. So I think that's a lot of what um, 
Erica's word is about. Um, and I didn't know any of that until years later. Uh, you know, by that time, internet has come out. I'm working in a library. And a friend of mine uh, at the library says, let's see what happens if we type your name into, you know, the, the search engine. And it's like, yeah, right. You know, nothing. <laughs> and all these hits start coming up. It's like, what's that? You know, I had no clue. And there's all this game theory stuff. I had no idea that that was going on. And my buddy clicked on one of the articles and it was this whole article on my showing up in Scott's songs, but written by a complete stranger, analyzing my relationship with him. <laughs> I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the internet is, huh? <laughs> you know, people analyze your life and, and you have no idea. <laughs> Were they far off then, or, or were they pretty spot on with the uh, assessment? Yeah, I think they were probably pretty spot on, and I think that was probably what made <laughs> me the most uncomfortable is you know just that yeah. vulnerability. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and and yet at the same time, you know, it's you know I love Scott. I still love yeah. Scott. But what are you going to do when your mothers are best friends and? Your brother is his best friend. And so there's a lot riding on it when, you know, I definitely, I mean, part of our tension between the two of us was that there was an attraction and, you know, his, his ability to pretzel an argument was one thing I had a big concern about. The other thing was lots of pressure. If things don't go well, you've got family members that are going to be impacted in a very, very bad way. And you don't, you don't want them to choose, but you also don't want them to have to figure out how to navigate everything. It, it just, I just felt it would have been a really bad mistake. Um, the last time that he asked me out and we talked about having a relationship, I talked to him mainly about, look, at, we've known each other so long, there's nothing new. You know, it, if we have an argument, we already know how it's going to go. If we have a discussion, we already know it's how it's going to go. We already know everything there is to know about each other because we've known each other for decades. You know, that that doesn't sound fun. Um, and what's weird is that when we were doing the memorial concert for Scott, I was learning, relearning um, if and when it falls apart. And I was, he had said when we were getting ready to perform that, uh, to, to learn the song for the first time, Scott said, so Nan, what do you think about doing, you know, more of a duet instead of backing vocals? And I said, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And he got this little smile on his face. And all those years, I, you know, it's like it's been in my memory, not consciously, but subconsciously. So then I'm reading the lyrics to If and When It Falls Apart. And I can see that thread of that discussion that we had running through that song. And I thought, that shit. Wow. I was singing a duet <laughs> about that discussion. <laughs> so yeah, he was writing songs about me. And you know, and you know, it's a little weird to be, you know, doing backing vocals and then go back and reread the the lyrics and thinking, huh. So this was another song about our weird relationship. 
and I get to sing backing vocals on it without you telling me that, huh? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, he had a, an interesting. Sometimes it was a little malicious, maybe. <laughs> I don't think you played right into his hands there, yeah. Nan, on that one. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know what? We loved each other. Yeah. Well, I would like someday to be able to talk at, in length about Real Nighttime. That is also one of my favorites. And if you would be so kind to come back on and just focus on that album with us, I would love that if you wouldn't mind um, at, sure. at another time. We've already taken up an hour and a half of your time and such sure. great stories, Nan, and, and the insight that you have not only into the band, but into Scott as a person. Yeah. I, I absolutely love it. And again, that quilt behind you is amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thanks. Your yeah. Color. It's not finished yet, but it's it's coming. It's a, that's amazing. It's an amazing backdrop. But yeah. Wonderful. We, we would definitely like to invite you to come back and talk about real nighttime. Um, it would be a pleasure. Thank you. I really nice. appreciate it, man. And uh, Ronnie, again, thanks for joining us. And um, no, no, of course. Driving. And hey, I promise this. I promised a story for the end, and I know I told this on the Shelley episode, but um, I had owned the plastic bag record, you know, back in the 80s, and I moved to California in 89. I lost it, and um, a couple, a few years ago, I was kind of hunting around for another one, and uh, I found one that um, actually was the same concept as what Omnivore ended up doing, was uh, just the pieces of paper on a plain white sleeve, right? So I wrote Nan, me and Nan have been you know, friends online for a while. And uh, I wrote Nan, I'm like, okay, look, I know most of them were in plastic bags, but did you do any on just a plain white cover? And Nan writes me back. And this is one of the greatest moments of my life. Uh, Nan's like, well, I don't remember that, but um, I'm going to my mom's house in a few months and, uh, you know, she doesn't need her copy. Um, I'll send you her copy. And um, of course I'm gracious, right, whatever. But I don't think about it. I don't bug her. Right, Nan, I didn't bug you. I didn't mention it. No, no. Well, true, true to form, a few months later, Nan writes me and says, I'm in Sacramento. I have the record. What's your address? Wow. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and then this arrives. This is Nan and Joseph's mother's copy of Blaze of Glory. I got to say, I played it. I don't think she opened it, man, between us. I don't. <laughs> well, I think it was unplayed. No, she may have. But, uh, I don't know. Maybe. It's hard to tell, yeah. right? It's hard. Yeah. To... The, yeah. The, the twisty tie seemed pretty, pretty crispy. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's one of my prized yeah. possessions. I love, I have your mother's copy of Blaze of Glory. It's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad it so. made you happy. Oh right, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and we didn't the, discuss your outfit here, but uh with oh, the young man that's, there. That's a Marameco dress, by the way. Nice. I don't know that, yeah, you I don't know if you know who that is, but that was a pretty big deal back then. So wow. Okay. Yeah. My Marameco that's dress. That's a new name on me and, and Jeff, probably, but yeah. <laughs> I knew it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you, Nan. That's one of yeah. my prized possessions, and I cherish well, it. That's visible to me every day. Yeah, that is really sweet so. of you to say, Ronnie. Thank you so so much. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, and, if you do agree to come back instead of saying goodbye, we can say until next time, Nan. 
Yes. Thank you so um, much for all of your stories. I absolutely loved hearing these stories from you, Nan. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I'm concerned about that business that we spoke of with recording that we lost the part about Scott's musical influences. Yeah. And something we should mention right now. Please. Do you mind? Are we okay with that? I would love, love yeah. that because that was. I'll, I'll try to be briefer. Um, the idea was that, you know, Scott was raised with musicals. His dad um, had a film projector and all the films they owned were musicals, which probably gave him his wonderful sense of theater, which Ronnie, I really appreciate you pointing out. That was, that was wonderful. Um, my parents loved all kinds of music. And so when my brother and I were really little, they were buying rock music. They, you know, started with rock and jazz, uh, excuse me, classical music and jazz, but because they loved music in general and could hear those influences on rock music, they, um, they brought rock music into our house very early on. Most of my friends didn't know the rock music that Joe and I knew uh, because my parents were buying it all along. And so when Scott came to our house, Scott was hearing all of that music. And so Scott was introduced to rock music of all different kinds because of my parents. And he dedicates music what happened to my parents because of that. So about seven or eight, nine years old, does that sound? Yeah, yeah. seven. I think that's what you were saying, wow. wow. Yeah. yeah, so he was, uh, he was getting his music education very early on. Most people in my generation uh, were listening to rock music as a reaction to their parents, you know, right. that, you know, turn off the Bing Crosby, this is what I want to listen to. And then we have David Bowie and Bing Crosby singing together, you know, decades later, That's, yes. it still blows me away. Um, so at that time, you definitely had a difference in the generations, but in my house, that wasn't the case. We listened to everything, uh, you know, Layla was, we played that, every single day we play Todd Rundgren every single day you know it was just lots and lots of things the Jefferson Airplane Surrealistic Pillow was uh, a big one in our family we all had opinions about which songs were our favorites on that album uh, so Scott was listening to that all the time and asking about it and so we can thank my parents for a lot of the influences yeah. that he had that's amazing. In my house, I love that he remembered. I love that he remembered to dedicate his wonderful book, which yeah. Jeff, you mentioned the other one being written. Scott's book is impossibly rare at this point, but um, he wrote a book called Music What Happened, and it goes year by year where he picks out 10 or 12 songs, whatever it is, every year, writes detailed about every, every song. It's 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 truly amazing book. And, yeah. um, detailed, pithy, and hilarious at the same time. Yeah. There are things that he says that uh, are just true and absolutely hilarious and it's a book that i i can think of a song sometimes i make a bet with myself i wonder if this is one of the ones that scott thought was good <laughs> and then i'll go and, and often i'm right but then i you know i think oh what did he say about this song and i'll and i'll look it up i i use the book a lot yeah it's a career highlight he picked a muff song for 1995 and oh wonderful I, that that came out of nowhere and yeah just wonderful yeah because he means him and the band and you and everybody mean yeah. so much to me and have for yeah. so long. So yeah. you are an incredible bass player. 
You are absolutely. Oh. I was listening to some of the uh, muffs last night and and watching you play. You're amazing. Agreed. You're just beautiful. Yep. I agree. Did that get recorded, Jeff? Did that did that get recorded? <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Uh, no, just Thank you, Nan. It's a I I I don't think of myself as a real musician, but um oh. yeah, thank you so much. It's wonderful yeah. to hear that. Yeah. Well you you did such a gorgeous uh, cover of Rain. And oh I I was just listening, my jaw was dropping, just like, oh my God, it's I, you know. I've always thought that that was a pretty part, but when you played it, it's like, oh my Lord, that is a beautiful thing. And listen to what he's doing with it. Yeah, it was fabulous, fabulous. Oh, we so, agreed to do that song. And then, and, then I, and then it sunk in like, oh my God, I got to learn that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just watching your hands move around uh, on the bass was, was terrific. It was great. Oh, thank so That's very sweet. Rare upper neck work by me. Rare, very yeah. rare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, okay. man, thank you so much. Your you, yep. your impact on the band is incredible. As we mentioned earlier, the the keyboard sound, the female backing vocals, all of that played out throughout. Even when you weren't no longer in the band, but your input and influence on this music that all three of us absolutely love, and a bunch of other people. So we yeah. really, really appreciate you taking time with us. And oh, I'm gonna yeah. thank you for saying that. It means a lot. Thank you. Great. And so until next time, <laughs> when we talk <laughs> about real nighttime. Bye bye, Nan. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Right. Thank you. Bye, everybody. All right, right. Be nice, bye. you guys. When you we'll talk see. about us, be we nice. Will. We'll okay. see you later. <laughs> All, right. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. bye. Soraya, we say it a lot, but I could listen to Nan for hours and hours. What an intelligent, cultured, amazing person. And the insight that she shared on the band and Scott today was incredible. You know, it's really impressive that someone who saw herself as having to push through shyness and took it as a challenge, you know, to play live and, and play in a band. All the things that she did, it, it just, I, I keep thinking about her saying, I was shy and felt like I had to push through, but here she was contributing in really vital ways. I mean, to all those albums that, I mean, granted, we just glossed over. Right. And I'm glad we're going to talk about Real Nighttime because it deserves its own, its own episode. But, and to find out how much she's really woven into and ingrained in what is these early productions of, of game theory. You know, she is a presence without being formally called out as a presence. Yeah. And, you know, I was really, really touched when she was talking about playing at the memorial for Scott and um, bad year at UCLA and she got choked up and, you know, and it's one of those things where you go, you know, I think for someone to be so much a part of your life as, as they were, I mean, they, their moms were best friends. The, you know, 
Joe and, and Scott, I feel so weird not calling him Joseph and just calling him Joe, but she called him Joe, so I feel justified. But Joe and Scott were best friends. And then she, you know, the families were intertwined, the, the lives were intertwined. And then here were these two people. And as Nan really succinctly said, she goes, she said, you know, we talked about it more than once. It just, a relationship couldn't happen, but Scott still felt the need to talk about her. Mm -hmm. And then now that she gave me a different context for Erica's word, uh, you know, and as she's telling, she's talking about it, she said, you know, here's someone who put, put his word before anything else. And here I broke a promise. And I was thinking, you can't blame yourself, for, you know, like in my head of it. But that friendship, that relationship, this experience between these two individuals, it, the currents run throughout all these albums. And it was something that like, it just hadn't conceived of in that way. And now that she said it, I'm like, okay, I think I need to go back and listen again. Yeah. Because she even said it herself. Now I listen and I can hear it as clear as day. And I'm thinking, what a cheeky, what a cheeky bugger Scott is to tell her on if and when it falls apart, let's play it, let's do it as a duet. And by the way, this is about you. You know, like she she's she said, you know, it took me a while. And then when I figured it out, you little shit, this is about me. And you know, a little smirk. But um <laughs> I, I was just, I'm really impressed with how quick game theory built up this crescendo because that's really what it did. You know, from altered learning, uh, uh, alternate learning. Right, yep. From alternate learning into game theory and then all, and all of this is in Scott's head you know, with a four track, a four track. Yes, I know at least that, okay? I don't know too much, but I know what that is. With a four track and then building and building. And this is all Scott Miller. This is all him. And you just go, and they were all in college. We went every weekend and, and toured and then came back in the, the, the schools and this and assignments. And I'm thinking, I would blow all of that off. <laughs> And yes, I'm the, I'm on the other side, <laughs> but I, but I see now I view the band a little differently because to me, this really made the story of the band so much more compelling because I keep forgetting that these were people that were conducting parallel lives at the, you know, everything was synchronous, but you know, they were musicians and something else. Yeah it's it's wild and so as i'm taking notes I, i'm just like circling things I, I cannot believe some of the stuff that she's telling me and i go now i have a really big question for joseph becca and that is how did it feel for his sister to be in a band also getting acclaimed um. and how did it feel for Joseph to look at his friend being in a band getting a claim that he's not in you know yeah. 
Yeah. You know, Joseph Becker, you cannot say that he hasn't had a very storied career because he has. Yeah, absolutely. But you go, you know, there's a moment where they both deal with their own things and do their own things. And I'm super curious what that felt like. Now, you know, that's question number one for Joseph, but I am, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of blown away right now. Yeah, same, same. Yeah. She gave me a lot to think about now. Yeah. And now I want to rehear green card. Yeah. Because I, I, I want to, when she said she got goosebumps hearing it live, like in her parents' living room. I'm thinking that was the spark, right? That was the that was the click for her. So now I want to go back and hear hear it one more time and hear see if I can figure out what that click is. Because how does Scott Miller go from being an annoying little bugger <laughs> to then being someone that she goes? Holy crap, this guy's got talent. And I have to be in this band with him. And I I need to be there with him. You know? It's crazy, dude. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So. It's wild. But one of the things I think, and I'm really, really glad that she reiterated, yes, we had a little glitch with the recording yeah. at the beginning. It's okay. I, I mean, what are you going to do? Um, but to know that Scott's musical history begins with musicals, okay? So the whole thing is about the story, the storytelling. And he's such a good lyricist, right? But also musicals weave in the, the beauty of production and knowing when to take our emotions to heights and lows and things. He does that in his production. Yeah. And then you mix that with the Beckers who are exposing him to a completely different genre of music that can tell a different story and take you on a very different adventure. Mm -hmm. And you go, well, hell yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never thought of the, the musical part being that much of an influence on even the arrangements and Ronnie brought that up um, on the part that was uh, messed up on the recording. And it was like, that makes a lot of sense to me. The, that influence of musicals on his arranging style. Think about it. And then, you know, cause we're talking early sixties. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about things like carousel and um, South Pacific, probably. South, I mean, <laughs> Oklahoma and I mean there are so many musicals it's all these um Godspell all these, yeah, well Godspell's later but you know even you got Guys and Dolls you've got West Side Story you've got a lot of these very pivotal and really kind of elevated musicals and and then you've got this kid listening that, can you imagine that's all you've been fed? Yeah. And then someone plays a Beatles record for you mm -hmm. or a Hendrix or a Jefferson airplane. And suddenly like you're like, yeah. 
like it's crazy and you know when she said she said early on and this was one of the parts that didn't get recorded um the question was how about how joseph and and scott met and she said you know that they were um they were in, in the same class and one of the things that joe always liked about scott was that he was always smiling that they both had very similar senses of humor and um she mentioned that um one of her sisters sisters in law said that uh, that one of the things they she liked was listening to Scott and Joe talk because eventually she'd be crying because they were so funny together and she called him the king of the bon mot bon mot being like the, of the good word oh. and or like a wordsmith a guy that knows his way around a good word and I'm like shoot man that's absolutely it he is the king of the bon mot. He's the guy with like a good sense of humor, but like really precise language. And she, hold on, I gotta find my quote. She said, Scott had an ability to string words together and say something profound and witty. And if you look, if you think about his songs and you go back into that, and even the book, even the book that they were mentioning, um, uh music uh music what happens yeah. right um yeah. yeah is it do i have the title yeah one? what happened music what happened yeah what happened thank you i put what happens um if you think about that you know he, he can he can target his language in a certain way and the fact that this guy had, a, had not just one, but few bands, mm -hmm. few iterations. Yeah. <laughs> and what was it that Ronnie said with, with pointed accounts that, that um, side one are Scott's songs, side two are other people's songs, but it was still a collaborative effort. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who knew how to use his words well, Absolutely. right? And use them and, you know, really kind of explore that. But she also mentioned, and this was something Ronnie brought up too, you know, that he was a hyperactive kid. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that restless brain, just constant, constant thinking, rethinking, relearning. And that's why when she said that there were some re-recordings later on, and it's just because he wanted to, you know, there were some things that maybe were one way and he wanted them different. He wanted the perfection of it to come through and you just go this is a guy whose brain just simply wouldn't let him rest yeah. because yeah. he was constantly constructing and deconstructing i've i found this conversation fascinating absolutely Thank you. Yep, absolutely fascinating yep. she's got story upon story upon story and and yet she's it's very uh, like i felt like every time she told us something new she you know, like I'm a what? You know, I felt the the power of it, yeah. and I felt you know it was just kind of second, you know, well, yeah, this happened. Yeah, I know. Oh, I I know what I was trying to say when she said you have to seize the moment. Yeah, seize the day, yeah. Seize the day, with the anecdote on Earl Smith, Earl Slick. Yeah. 
Um, I felt that's all they did in this band was seize these opportunities. And then we had really this gift, right? Yeah. yeah. These series of albums, one in a plain white trash bag that hats off to Scott for thinking of that. That was, that must have been hell to put in a bin yeah. in a in a record store. But, you know, it seems like he just did a ton of that. Yeah. Seizing the opportunity, seizing the moment. And um, and then when the band breaks up, there's that loss of traction. You know, it it, it takes people into different places and spaces. And yeah, I don't know. Just I'm I'm very reflective right now. She gave me a lot to think about. Agreed. agreed. Hopefully she'll accept our invitation to come back and talk real nighttime. I hope that that happens. Uh, you know what? She said yes, and I think we're just going to have to hold her to it. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. Man, amazing. I can't thank Nan Becker more. Yes, I agree. What an, what an amazing person. Yes, I agree. I agree. So until next and time. Joseph Becker, we're coming for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> later but oh my gosh nan becker amazing and thank you once again to our always amazing co-host ronnie barnett oh man i don't know jeff i should we just end it here i guess we should until next all right move on paisley people
Stay the 